that. We're going to continue our series in 1 Peter chapter 4. I think it's very appropriate since we're dealing with so many issues in our life today as well as our nation uh, that we deal with a message on suffering as Peter begins to wind down his letter uh, to the church. As he's doing that, uh, I know that some of you maybe feel overwhelmed today. You kind of feel beat up a little bit by life. And so maybe you'll identify with this little video. If you have children uh, watching by video especially, I know they enjoyed that one, and you're going to have to explain all that violence, I'm sure. And so I wanted to give you that challenge this morning. Now, that's kind of some cartoons back when I was younger, but that last message, but God can do anything, that's certainly the message of 1 Peter. As we open this letter, we understand that there are trials and troubles that come to life. Now, here's the, here's the amazing thing for, to me. And I'm sure to you as well, as you think about it, no matter how many problems you have, I mean, how many of you here have a problem at all? I mean, you're going through something, right? I mean, all of us going through the pandemic and other things as well. And so all of us have trials. All, the, all of us have trials, it seems like, all the time. We're either coming from a, a trial or we're in a challenge or a trial or we're looking forward to that trial. And so with all of that in mind, it it's, uh, never ceases to amaze, amaze me that I am surprised by those trials. And many of you are as well. And the message this morning really from, from uh, the Apostle Peter is that you're going, to, you're going to go through things in life. There's nothing you can do to avoid that. We're not in heaven. We're not in a utopia right now. Uh, we're not there yet. We're living in a world, a sinful world that has all kinds of problems. And we're not only affected by our own sin, but we're affected by the people around us. We're affected by the trials and troubles that happen all around the world that we have nothing to do with at all. And Peter's message is God can do anything. So therefore, God's not only interested in getting you through the trial and the suffering, but he's, you, he wants to use the suffering in your life to better you. And as we open up this passage, he even says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial. And so we look at four things this morning, basically four commands from this passage. Number one, don't be surprised. We, we are surprised. We always say, why me, Lord? Why me? Why is this happening to me? As opposed to happening to my neighbor. You know, I guess. Uh, why is this happening to me? Why do I have to go through this? Constantly surprised. Now, here's the problem. If we are surprised by the trial that we're facing, we're probably going to be knocked out by it. 
We're going to be knocked off our spiritual balance and probably not be able to handle it like we really want to handle it and like God wants us to handle it. The old boxer uh, has always said, I've heard it said by old boxers, it's not the big punch that knocks you out. It's the one that you don't see. Well, this word surprise means astonished, shocked, uh, taken back by everything that's going on. And so the big punch comes in, it knocks you out, and it was knocking out the people of this day. You have to understand that Peter was not only talking to Jewish Christians, but he was also uh, referring and looking at also the Gentiles as well. Now, the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles is like America and the rest of the world in this sense. Back in this day, the Jewish people were accustomed to all the persecution. They have been one group of people that have been uh, suffering and under trial and under persecution since basically history has been recorded. But the Gentiles, not so much. Now, they were going through financial suffering. They would go through other trials and physical sufferings, but they were not, they were not used to the persecution at all. It was taking them by surprise. And sometimes that takes us by surprise as Americans too. The rest of the world very much under not only trial, but persecution as well. As a matter of fact, 45 million people have been killed for their faith in the last century. There's been more people persecuted and then died for their faith in Jesus Christ in the past 50 years than in the first 300 years of church history. And so we're seeing this going on now, but yet we're not seeing this so much in America because we have freedom of faith, we have freedom of religion, and we have all kinds of freedoms that we have enjoyed uh, because, uh, really because, of that we fought for them, and people died for them, and we have those kinds of freedoms. But now, some of those trials are coming to our life as well. And as Americans, we're sometimes thinking to ourselves, well, life shouldn't be that way. You know, it's life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. I can pursue happiness in my life. And therefore, if anything comes in involved in my life, I mean, I, it just throws me off. And the more you live for the now, the more you think your, all your happiness comes right now rather than in heaven, the more you're going to be not only surprised but depressed by the trials that come in your life. After all, you have one chance of this life. You've got to get all the gusto you can, as they say. And therefore, if somebody, something comes into your life, a trial in your life to stop that, somebody in your life comes to inhibit that in some way, you become upset. You, be, you and I become maybe even kind of angry and bitter at that because we have one chance and somebody's ruining that for us. We're surprised by the trials that come our way. Well, notice it says it's not just a regular trial. It says here it's a fiery trial, one that has pain to it, but also one that has use to it. What kind of things does the fiery trial give us? Well, not only do we, not be, we need to understand, we don't need to be surprised by the trials that we go through, but also we don't need to be wasteful because, again, the Bible tells us, and I believe that 1 Peter really is teaching us, not only does God want us to get through the trials, but he wants to use the trials in our life for a real purpose. And I want you to notice the first thing, look at four things. One is purification. We can be purified by the trials that we're going through. He says that it comes, he says, the fiery trial which comes upon you to test 
you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, you think it's weird that we're going through trials, that we go through any kind of suffering or persecution. But he says these are fiery trials. What does a fiery trial bring? Well, he's really pulling off um, chapter 1 and verse 7. He's coming back to something that he's already stated before when he said this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, can, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, the old illustration basically is this. You know, you, you have, uh, say, silver, a silversmith. It's trying to purify silver. And so he heats it up, and the heat brings the impurities to the top. One of the things that I discovered in a little bit of reading is that minerals, and of course, I think this makes sense, we just maybe haven't thought about it before, but minerals in the ground grow together. All the dirt grows in there together because it's all part of the earth. And so uh, rocks or uh, minerals or uh, even jewels are not necessarily pure when they come out. In fact, really, they're not. So what do you do? You take gold, you take silver, and you heat it up. All the impurities rise to the top. You scrape them off, and then what's happening there is you're purifying something, but you're purifying something in a sense that you're separating it. And that's the key. He said you're tested. He said it's tested, so some strange thing that happens to you because you're going through a fiery trial, a trial that separates things. What's it separate? It separates the allegiances of our life. It separates the, what we worship from what we should not be worshiping. You see, when you and I are not going through trials, allegiances can stand together. They, they can mix up together. They can live together and live together in harmony. For example, there you are, you're, you're coming to, this happened to me. I was uh, working in a grocery store as a college student. And I was going to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. I had all Sunday afternoon off if I wanted it. And they came up and they started opening up grocery stores on Sunday afternoon or Sunday. And uh, we didn't have, I was in a union, so they didn't have to, we didn't have to work on Sunday. But it was a choice. But they gave us time and a half. Time and a half to work on Sunday. And many people jumped at the at the opportunity because we all needed money. I mean, college students and even those that are working. In fact, if you work full-time, you get double time for doing that when it first started opening up on Sunday. And I had a choice, skip church and, and get time and a half, money that I needed, or I could stay at church and maybe have to, if I have to work, feel like I'm obligated, work Sunday, a little bit Sunday afternoon, a couple hours, and then leave. There was a choice that I had to make in life, and thank God I, I chose the church. But we, we look at other things in life, other things that, are, you know, a quiet time. You say, well, you know, I really don't want to have my quiet time in the morning because now I'm under all this, this trial at work, and I'm, I'm not sleeping well at night, and I'm getting up. I need my extra sleep. And so you, you divide allegiances. It separates allegiances in your life, the business world as well. Everything's going fine. Everything's going great. You have a good career going on, and then the boss asks you to do something that's unethical. Or the boss asks you to work so many hours that it violates the time with your family or the time in ministry. Now, allegiances are now competing. And what Peter is saying is, when the fiery trial comes, when suffering comes in our life, we have to look at it, and we have to say, what is... 
What is the functional trust in my life? What do I functionally, not what I say, but what is the functional trust in my life? What am I placing my faith in? A good test of this. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you say, you know, life just doesn't have any meaning anymore? And maybe it's only for a few days. You've just been knocked off your spiritual balance. You were surprised by the suffering. And I've heard people say in my life that they have no meaning in life, period. Their life has lost its meaning. What did it lose? What happened in their life is that they had, a, they had fiery trials, sometimes more than one. It divided their allegiances. And what they were really placing their functional trust in uh, really got hurt through all the suffering. You know, somebody says, well, um, you know, they, they've always looked young. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're old. It's hard to give it up. And somebody else says, well, I used to be so athletic. Now I can't get out on the golf course or I can't play tennis. I can't do certain things in my life. Like That's hard. It's difficult to give those things up. So whatever you have been placed, if you find your life is meaningless and you're a believer in Christ, and that's what they said when he says beloved in verse 12, he is talking to believers here. If you found, found yourself in a life that you just feel like has no meaning, you have been placing your functional trust in something besides God, and now that's not, it's gotten knocked off its pedestal. Your business life. Maybe somebody here is, during this pandemic has lost their business, and heaven forbid that would happen. It's a horrible thing, and I, my heart goes out to you. But some people can handle that because they think to themselves, no, my first allegiance is to God. My first allegiance, my trust is in God. I'm placing my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ. He's going to take care of me. But if you're, if you're depending on your career, your business, in order to bring you meaning in life, that's now gone. So therefore, the meaning is gone as well. The fire leads to choices. As a matter of fact, I would say, Without the fire of God in our life, without those fiery trials, we don't know who our God is. We don't really know where we're placing our functional trust because it's being tested. The purity of our faith is being tested. And the only way we can grow in maturity to find out who we're really trusting in and how to grow that trust is through the, that purification, that fiery trial. But then... Not only does it purify, but also we, we see the word identifies as well. And he says in verse uh, 13, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may be rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says you share in Christ's sufferings. This is identity with him. You're identifying with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. What you're saying is, Jesus Christ died for me, and now that I'm suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ, I realize just a touch of what he has gone through and what he has gone through. It causes me then, when I share Jesus Christ with other people, I can share the love of God and the love of Christ, of the cross of Jesus Christ, and partially of that is because of what I have gone through myself. Rick Warren has said, every storm is a school. Every trial is a teacher. Every experience, an education. But then I want you to notice also it glorifies. Not only does it identify, but it glorifies as well. In verse 13, it says, when his glory is revealed, talking about in the last days. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and the and, and of God rests upon you. Here, he draws from Exodus. 
chapter 40 with the Shekinah glory, the glory of God over the, the, the tabernacle and the glory of God over the nation of Israel. He says, you're going to share in that glory. He says here, you have been tested and therefore you've been found faithful. How does this test of glory go? Well, one man was talking about, he was a pilot, a test pilot for planes. He says, depending on the plane, I would take maybe a plane up 40,000 feet. I'd do all kinds of turns. I'd do all kinds of dives. I'm not trying to crash the plane. I'm trying to test the plane. How much is it going to take? Is it safe enough to fly? Is it strong enough? How far will it go? There's a test. There's a evaluation. There's a kind of a critical exam happening with the plane, but the expert pilot knows how much stress to place on that plane. The expert God knows how to place that upon us as well. And when God comes through and glorifies himself in us, what happens? The world out here, outside of the church walls, the, the, the ones that were not the beloved, will look at the Christians and wonder about the hope that is within us. How can we go through the trials that we're going through? How can we go through the testings that we're going through and come out like, like God wants us to come out. How can we take what is going on in our life the way we take it? Not surrendering our allegiances, but they see the testimony of God in our life that we are trusting, our functional trust is really in Jesus Christ, and it glorifies him. But pain with no purpose is the worst pain. Are you wasting it? Are you wasting the sufferings of your life? Wasting it because of not the, you're not surrendering to Jesus Christ in that fiery trial. But some people say, well, you're right, Pastor, I've been through a lot of things, and it kind of reminds me of uh, a guy telling me, a uh, pastor telling me about uh, stopping at a, a car accident. I looked pretty bad. And he pulls off the way many people were pulling off. And he gets out and talks to the paramedics. He says, you know, I, I can, maybe I can help. I'm a pastor. And he hears this guy. He says immediately he, he smelled the alcohol coming from the car. He found out that somebody else had been killed in the accident because of this drunk driver. And the drunk driver being pulled out, placed on a stretcher, and all he could say is, why me, God? Why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? When in reality he was doing it to himself. Which brings me to the third command here. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed for suffering for the wrong reasons. Notice in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. It mentions four things. I'm not going to go over those things because you kind of know what they are. You can see what they are. The, the biggest question is, why do they mention a meddler in the same breath as a, as a uh, murderer? Well, I'll let you dwell on that one. Take that home with you, I guess. But he says here, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as an evildoer or a meddler. He says, don't suffer for sin. He says, three types of sin. All of them begin with the letter C, so you can take notes easy on this one. First of all, there's common suffering. There's, I'd say three types of not sin, but three types of suffering. There's common suffering. It's mentioned in verse 12, the fiery trial is just common stuff that come upon you in life. Common suffering is like, a, like a, a hurricane coming through Florida. I can't blame you for the hurricane. No one here in this room 
is guilty of bringing a hurricane upon us. No one here is guilty about, of, of bringing the pandemic upon us, COVID-19. But we suffer for it. We're suffering even if you don't have the, uh, the disease. You're still suffering for it. And your business is suffering. Your freedoms are suffering for it. We're all suffering. But it's not our fault. It's common suffering. We're going to go through this. Sometimes we can avoid uh, some of this by prayer. But most of the time, we live in a kind of a world that suffers. And we live in a world that is uh, also sinful. So we even suffer for other people's sins. Just like the drunk driver. He killed someone. The person that was not drinking, that was just an innocent person driving a car, suffered for what this other man did. So it's common suffering. But then there's also carnal suffering. Suffering of the flesh. Suffering because of, of sin. And that's mentioned here in verse 15. He says, don't, don't suffer because of the sin in your life. He's talking here, again, to Christian people. He says, make sure that you, don't, you can't come to God and say, oh, God, it's just all your fault. Why are you doing this to me? You know, well, I know, God, I was on drugs, but why did I get addicted? Well, you didn't have to start. God, why did I uh, do this in my life? Why did, why, why did I flunk out of school? Well, you didn't study. And over and over and over again, we bring things upon our life. Here's what. Galatians 6 tells us, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, he also shall reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Another way of putting, putting it, the poison water we drink often comes from the wells that we have dug. He's saying, look, you go out and plant a field, what happens? You take a little small seed maybe corn, and you plant the corn seed in. It's a very small, very small seed. You're going to reap what you sow. You're not going to reap an apple. You're not going to reap, uh, uh, you know, green beans. You're going to reap corn only. Well, the stalk's going to grow up. You don't reap it right then. The stalk, corn stalk grows up. It has ears of corn from it. And so you reap later than you sow. The seed has to grow first. So you reap what you sow. You reap later than you sow, but you reap more than you sow. Every time. Because as corn stalk grows up, and um, my parents, I grew up on a, a small, very, very, it's not really a farm, but we had a huge two-acre garden. We grew corn. You go out and pick the corn. You had several stalks, several ears of corn on the stalk. Then you had another harvest and maybe even a third one come through. You reap more than you sow. And the Bible's telling us here, don't do that. You're, you, you're going to suffer in common suffering. Don't bring other suffering on yourself. Why is it different for the Christian who's walking with God? Less suffer, they have less suffering in their life than the person who is not walking with God just because of this. This is really the only reason. Besides answer to prayer, this is it. And that is, you're, you're walking with the Lord and you're not practicing the things that the lost world is practicing and therefore you don't reap the, the addiction. You don't reap the suffering. You don't reap the car accidents as much. And so we look. And then finally, Christian suffering. And that's what this whole passage is really referring to. As we look in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be depressed about it. Don't be ashamed like, uh, like Job's.
people that came to him, his friends, and said, Job, if it wasn't for this, this, and this, and this, you're, you're guilty. And Job says, no, I'm not guilty. There's no one confessed sin in my life. I'm not guilty. No, 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 you've got to be guilty. He says, don't be ashamed of that. Don't, don't cower back as though in your Christian life, God is somehow, because he's not blessing you, you must not be living the Christian life. God's got another plan for you. He has another plan for me when I go through suffering as well. Paul put it this way. If you have this treasure in jars of clay, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, we in America do not live the rest of the way, the, not only the rest of the world, but the rest of Christianity in the last 2,000 years has basically lived in the sense of being under any kind of persecution, but we know it's coming. We know that some things are here. We have scriptural views that would cause you maybe, if you believe the Bible, then you have allegiance problem because now you've got to go for this job. You're not sure you can get it and believe the Bible. If they know you believe the Bible, you may not get that job. If they know you believe the Bible, you may lose your job. Craig James, who used to be a running back for the um, Southern Methodist University back years ago, and uh, he was the part of the Pony Express with Eric Dickerson back in the uh, 1980s. He uh, played pro football, then he became an ESPN analyst for the NFL. And uh, he decided to, at one year, just take a leave of absence and run for Congress in his home state of Texas. He ran on a, on a pro-family, pro-life uh, issue, among other issues as well like that. And so when it was over, he lost the election. And when it was over, he went back to ESPN and they wouldn't hire him because his beliefs did not match up with their beliefs. And so we see that more and more coming up in our, in our nation. So what do we do? What do we do? We're faced with many of the same things the rest of the world is faced with. We're going through these fiery trials and they're separating our allegiances and really testing who we really are in the Lord. They're maturing us. They're, they're there to glorify God in our life and glorify God in the world. And so what do we do? He finishes up in verse 17. He says, for the time of judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He says, look, it begins here. You know, we can talk about all you want to about the political parties and the political unrest and I know that the church can't just turn a, a key maybe and, and do something different, but it's been, it's been now generations of the church not coming forth and being all that it could be. It's not all the church's fault, but it begins here. It begins by, by having a unified voice, by the church not being conflicted, but also the generations. Listen, when I was coming up, I was, we, we were very critical of the established church. We're going to make all kinds of changes. Next generation comes up. Very critical. And all of a sudden, all kinds of changes that are made. That, and, and you have the prosperity gospel maybe being preached over here. And then another one over here is preaching uh, just, uh, just salvation with no really discipleship. Nothing, not preaching the whole counsel of the word of God. 
You have the gospel not being preached and families are breaking up and men are leaving their homes and affecting the family. Judgment has to begin here. The, the testing must begin in the household of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 14. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and then will I heal their land. That's what it takes first. A repentance of our own self, of not having our allegiance toward God, of not being that advertisement out in the rest of the world that Jesus Christ really still is the answer. It begins with our own heart. Then he goes on to say, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's saying, look, you're scarcely saved. What does he mean by that? By the grace of God. Everyone's saved by the grace of God. No one deserves salvation. You know, how can God do that? How can God send someone to, a, to any place but heaven? How could he not love them? How could he not reward them? The Bible tells us that we all are all sinners, that we cannot be saved on our own. It's only by the grace of God. And there's, there's a sense of thanksgiving there, a sense of gratitude there, a sense of, oh my goodness, I might be going through a lot of problems now, but praise, praise be to God, I'm saved by the grace of God. Jesus Christ has come into my heart and forgiven of all my sins. So therefore, what do I need to do? I need to entrust my soul. Look in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer, therefore always a point of application, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Faithful. Why is he faithful? Verse 18, he saved you by the grace of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. How can you entrust him? And, and, and he, you're suffering in the will of God. What that means is, is that you're not suffering because of sin, but somehow God has placed that suffering in your life or having you being affected by the common suffering around you to do something great and wonderful in your life. And he says, when you do that, entrust. Same word. means to deposit money into a safe. It's the same word used of Jesus. When he says, calling out with a loud voice on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Paul in 2 Timothy said this, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted, what has been committed to me. He says, keep on following. You keep on following, and you keep, it says in here, creator while doing good. You keep doing good. You say, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting persecuted for doing it. Good, do, do good anyway. Somebody says, well, no good deed goes unpunished. Do good anyway. In doing that, you're committing you're, you're saying to God, Lord, I'm entrusting my soul, my salvation, my life into your hands, even though I cannot see the end, even though it looks bad all the way around. And the truth is, folks, sometimes it is bad. It's just not the whole truth. Only God knows the whole truth. Andrew Dorsey was a black musician from Atlanta. 
In the 20s, he gained a certain amount of notoriety as a composer of jazz tunes, and uh, he gave that all up in 1926 to concentrate exclusively on spiritual music. Peace in the Valley is one of the best-known songs. But there is a story behind that famous song deserves to be told. In 1932, the times were hard for Dorsey. Just trying to survive the Depression years as a working musician meant tough sledding. On top of that, his music was not accepted by many people. Some said it was just too early. The devil's music, they called it. Many years later, Dorsey would laugh about it and said, I got kicked out of some of the best churches in the land. But the real kick in the teeth came one night in St. Louis when we received a telegram informing him that his pregnant wife had died suddenly. Dorsey was so filled with grief that his faith was shaken to the roots. But instead of wallowing in self-pity, he turned to the discipline he knew best, music. In the midst of agony, he wrote the following song. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. Though through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the night, to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Take, take me home. Lead me home. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand, lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. So many have gone through so much, so many trials in life, only to make them pure, more pure. Testing their allegiances and they decide for God. And because of that, even though they're dead, their ministry, their influence lives on because they entrusted their souls. I close with these verses. I hope they'll be an encouragement to you. Isaiah 43 but now, thus says the Lord, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, for I am with you. Let's just stop right there. I am your Savior. You're mine. He says in verse 12, beloved. That's Christians. For the Christian, the suffering is not wasteful. It's not just getting through the suffering. It's using the suffering to glorify God, to purify our allegiances, to identify and become more like Jesus Christ. There's a purpose to it all. What about you today? Can you say, he is my savior. I don't have to fear. I know he lives in my heart. Whether you're watching by television or you're watching Facebook or online, whether you're here today, I wanna ask you a question. Do you know that Jesus is your savior? that he died for you, that there's a purpose to all this in your life and not just wasteful. Do you know 
that you have Jesus in your heart. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.